0: This is Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. Hey, Brett.
1: Hello, Sydney. Thanks for having me.
0: Today, I'm here with the Alliance for Securing Democracies Media and Digital Disinformation fellow, Brett Schaefer, who recently launched a really interesting new project called Hamilton 2.0. You spent lots of your career tracking disinformation. This new tool is actually tracking overt information from the Russian government. So we'll get a little bit into that. But first, I want to start by talking about your original project with the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which was called Hamilton 68. You guys got a lot of attention and did a lot of work tracking covert Russian activity on Twitter and other social media platforms. You found a lot of interesting things, but you ran into a lot of challenges. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like, kind of navigating that environment, and what the experience was like up until today?
1: Yeah, I mean, Hamilton 68, I guess there were probably a couple issues that were sort of baked into it from the start is, one, the major criticism that was levied against it is that it wasn't fully transparent in terms of the accounts that we were actually looking at. And that was something that the guys who put it together were aware of from the start was likely going to be a challenge. So they looked at it as sort of a a catch-22 situation because they didn't wanna reveal these accounts because again, they were looking at covert accounts, some of whom uh, very likely were real people who were unwittingly part of Russian influence. So you had accounts that they had a high degree of certainty were actually being run by the internet research agency or being run by Russian intelligence. And then you had the accounts that just sort of picked up those narratives or were heavy amplifiers of RT and Sputnik News, but who were not necessarily in the employ of the Russians. And that was a real challenge because, of course, they didn't want to out those people as somehow being propagandists. But by not publicly being fully transparent with every single account that we were looking at, there was some pushback uh, in terms of how can we trust this data Uh, How do we know that you're actually looking at the accounts that you say you're looking at? So there was just this inherent problem at looking at the covert space. And then the other issue is over time, Twitter started picking off the accounts that we actually had the highest degree of certainty about. So we were losing kind of the core nucleus of the network that we were looking at. So a year and a half in, when we finally retired the first dashboard, Twitter probably suspended 40 or 50 of our original accounts, which meant that we were kind of left with a network that was breaking apart. And we felt less certain about the outputs that were coming out of that network.
0: You also mentioned how the media coverage of the dashboard itself provided another unique set of challenges. so
1: the best part about the dashboard is it took something that was very complex and very difficult for most people to understand. And it made it very easy because it just provided results for you that were easy to digest if you are not an expert. But the worst part of the dashboard was it took something that was very complex and made it very easy to understand. So you had a lot of people who had drive-by reporting on the dashboard who would go to it, not fully understand what they were looking at or how to interpret results that were being surfaced on the dashboard and writing headlines off of it.
0: Yeah, it just goes to show how difficult reporting on disinformation actually is. Right. And one last thing that you had mentioned that I thought was really counterintuitive was that you said that the fake bots often were not even chattering about the most interesting things. Uh, and that kind of was an indication for, you know, maybe this isn't the b- most productive road to go down.
1: Over time, it frankly became a little bit boring looking at the results on the dashboard for me because I was looking at it every single day. So we would get asked often, you know, what are what are the Russian trolls or bots talking about today? And it was just sort of obvious over time what they'd be talking about is so whatever was in the news cycle that was controversial, that had a partisan angle or some sort of conspiratorial bent to it, that would be what they would talk about. It was the NFL protest. There would be a mass shooting like the shooting in Vegas. We would see gun control being brought up. So they just really followed the trending topics. And over time, you could just really predict what was going to show up on the dashboard by asking those questions what is the most controversial topic in the current news cycle, that was what the bots and trolls would be discussing. Very, very, very rarely did you see something pop up on the dashboard We sort of said, where did this come from?
0: You said Twitter has knocked off most of these bots. I'm
1: not sure Twitter has necessarily knocked off all the bots. I mean, bots are still a problem. They are just policing their space a little bit more actively. So our first priority was to do all we could to block and remove malicious activity from interfering with our users' experience. We created dedicated teams within Twitter to enhance the quality of the information our users see and to block malicious activity wherever and whenever we find it. You don't see bot accounts that stay active and have large followings for two or three years. They, they last for a couple weeks, so they can have an impact in the short term. But over time, those accounts will be taken down much quicker than they were in the past.
0: What are you looking out for in the coming months, especially as the 2020 election ramps up? And for people who are trying to navigate what could be potential disinformation, first of all, I guess, what would your advice be and what are you most wary of?
1: Disinformation is kind of the wrong word for what we see, even in the bot troll space. The French call it information manipulation, Les manipulations which I think is much more accurate because 98 percent of the time, the content that we saw was not false, it wasn't fake necessarily, it was manipulated. So they're giving you kind of an extreme version of events. And there's also sort of, they're selectively discussing topics at a certain time. So they're creating an information space that makes you think that there is consensus around a certain idea or a certain narrative by amplifying that narrative. And again, it's usually the most partisan or conspiratorial. And that kind of exists in the covert and overt space. When you look at RT, Sputnik, very, very rarely are they pushing things out that are clearly and demonstrably false. But what you pick up on is, A, what are they talking about over and over and over again? What are the narratives that they're going back to every single day or every single week? And then conversely, what are they not talking about? So where is this strategic silence involved too? When you look at it over time, longitudinally you start picking up the trends. So, okay, this is clearly something that they want to hit on. This is something that they feel like strategically weakens the U.S., whatever you think their strategic objective is for that topic, because they're talking about it over and over and over again. And then again, where are they silent? What are they not discussing? And there you can kind of pick out, okay, this is clearly how they want to shape the information space.
0: This is a great segue into the next iteration of the Hamilton tool, which we're calling Hamilton 2.0. The new tool is focusing on... Overt Russian information. So, what does that mean? I think when people, you know, people are primed to think bots and trolls and the IRA, but you're thinking, you're t- taking a different route this time.
1: So, we are now going to accounts on Twitter, broadcast television, YouTube channels, and websites that are all directly attributable to the Russian government or Russian funded media. The difference is, A, we can be fully transparent about what we're looking at. So, we're able to publish every account that we're pulling data from every broadcast, there's no ambiguity about where this information is coming from. In the overt space, it's also a little bit more strategic than what you would see in the covert space. As I mentioned, in the covert space, they tended to be bandwagon followers of whatever was happening, kind of the bloodstream of the news cycle that was controversial and just latching onto that. Overtly, there's much more of this sort of strategic manipulation around foreign policy, for example. So they're going to talk more about what's happening in Venezuela or Iran or Syria, more recently Hong Kong, places where they have geopolitical interests and they want to kind of move the needle on those conversations. You also see domestic content as well, for sure. But there you actually have an editorial team that is making those decisions. So you see more of a strategic approach. The bots and trolls are just throwing a bunch of stuff on the wall and seeing what sticks. I mean, they are quite literally millennials who are working a, you know, a nine to five type job where they have quotas to fill out and they're just pumping out a lot of content. RT is a a news network. They have an editorial team. Of course, the editorial team has to respond to the Kremlin, but that team makes decisions about what they're airing and what they're not airing. And then you have to ask your question, well, why? What What are the Russians getting out of that coverage? So to me, it's frankly a bit more interesting because there you're actually getting to a bit more strategy Rather than just disruption and chaos.
0: So take a step back, and for people maybe who aren't as familiar with the Russian media environment, the media environment that is catered to the rest of the world, right. not Russians. Uh, so we have RT, we have Sputnik. Where are these guys operating and what's their reach? And, and, you know, who, how many people are they reaching?
1: So RT and Sputnik are now operating globally. Uh, Sputnik in particular, I think, has. 35 different foreign language versions. And Sputnik is is a website, it's a news portal. So they are very active throughout Europe, but also Latin America as well. RT, I'm not sure the exact number, but probably at least a half dozen different languages in terms of broadcast. Where RT has always been particularly effective is on YouTube. So RT was way ahead of the game about targeting the digital space for their content. Most Americans couldn't even tell you if their cable package had RT on it. On YouTube, RT is either the first or the second most watched news channel on YouTube. It is hard to get a sense of their overall reach other than their numbers on YouTube, which you can see, but certainly just running Google searches on issues that Russia cares about, you're gonna get RT and Sputnik content that surfaces. So they have not been very effective at reaching Americans or Europeans Mm -hmm through traditional television. They've been very effective at targeting people in the digital space.
0: It's true that Sputnik also makes its way into wire stories often, and people are reading these stories maybe not even knowing that they're sourced to, to Russian state propaganda, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, Sputnik, I would say, tends to be a bit more conspiratorial than RT. RT is definitely a bit more credible. RT won't wade into the same waters that Sputnik will. Sputnik will pick up really some kind of random conspiracy theories that RT typically doesn't touch. But to your point, there there is sort of the information laundering that happens on social media, and it's not just in the Russian space, it exists everywhere. You take a piece of information, it gets posted somewhere, whether that's an anonymous account on 8chan or Sputnik picking up a story, and at some point, those narratives just get washed and laundered through various accounts um, on social media and get picked up by other outlets. So by the time you as a consumer of news on social media see a story, you're probably reading it from an outlet that is two or three degrees distanced from RT or Sputnik. So you have no idea where that point of origin is. And that's actually one of the things we want to start looking at, We're walking narratives back to what you'd call patient zero. The distribution of cases is spotty. Where did Usually this start? As isolated incidents. Where was the first instance of this appearing small, online? Very localized outbreak. It's challenging, of course, because often, particularly when you talk about hack and leaks, for example, their strategy is to leak that through an anonymous account on some fringe social media platform and then slowly work that into the bloodstream. So again, when a journalist or casual user comes across it, they're not able to flag that this is coming from the Russians because it isn't at that point for them. They're seeing it from maybe their local news reporter or a friend or an uncle through an email chain. So it's a way of distancing uh, information from a less credible source and getting it to a more credible source. For that consumer.
0: Let's talk about some of the specific narratives that you picked up because that's really where the interesting stuff comes in. Um, so how about first China and Huawei? Um, you've found some some surprising or uh, intriguing narratives there so far.
1: The, the China coverage has been fascinating and something I definitely didn't expect, at least to the extent that we've seen it so far. So we now have data going back, I guess, three or four months. And China, particularly on broadcast, is actually discussed more than Russia is. So if you look at the countries mentioned, it's it's US, UK one and two. That's not surprising because we're looking at RT America, RT UK, you'd expect them to talk about local issues. But third, you would expect Russia the same way that Voice of America, you expect to be talking about America. Russia is often not mentioned. Um, And the fact that China is mentioned more than Russia On Russia today in Sputnik is very, very surprising. There's been a lot of coverage of the Hong Kong protests. The initial demonstrations months ago were sparked by a proposed extradition. Almost all the coverage has been anti protest. Again, not surprising given the fact we know Putin is not a particular fan of street protests. But we're going to kick think. uh, But they've really kind of adopted um, these pro PRC talking points. Both Hong Kong and Bolivia there are appear that are just coming through Russian state media force to create chaos is this
0: something the people of both of those countries have chosen to do on their own is it an organic manifestation of their true feelings or is it somehow being orchestrated by something from the outside
1: and then the coverage that i found the most fascinating is their coverage of technology particularly one around huawei so they have spent the better part of the last year telling American and, and European audiences that 5G is going to give them cancer. It's going to affect our ability to predict weather patterns. It's going to because be the end of, of the privacy. The of
0: wireless radiation, the science is in. Wireless radiation can lead to cancerous heart tumors, uh, brain tumors, uh, DNA damage.
1: Wireless Basically, it's going to be apocalyptic. To autism, Alzheimer's. And I'm and using more. RT's yes, word there. I mean, one of their segments was called The 5G Apocalypse. When they talk about Huawei, none of those issues come up. And in fact, they are very pro-Huawei in the trade fight with the U.S. And you'll even see, like, exclusives inside Huawei headquarters.
0: And an RT exclusive will go inside the headquarters of Chinese tech giant Huawei. They
1: really feel more like they're infomercials. And
0: how they're implementing 5G.
1: The news segments. Plus, see how the ongoing... Process. So the same network, at times the same exact reporters who will roll out stories about, you know, cancer fears around 5G, really just health conspiracy theories. Two days later, we'll go to the Huawei CEO and do this sort of softball interview talking about how great the relationship is between Russia and Huawei. And, you know, Huawei is going to be at 6G while we're still getting to 5G. So you see this real divergence in how they talk about Technology when it's in the American-European space, and then technology when it's Chinese technology, which of course Russia is currently rolling out.
0: Can, can you answer, like, why do you think that is?
1: I think, you know, Russia wants to build up its own internet and technology sector. The advantage that Russia has always had in the information space, and they've done this going back 60 years to their active measures during the Cold War is they understand that American officials have to be responsive to American, the American public's concerns. So by seeding this disinformation that 5G is going to give people cancer, they have effectively created this grassroots or maybe astroturf movement to try to slow down 5G rollout in the U.S., Because of course, if 5G in the West is behind, Russia and China can take the lead. And and of course, Russia and China have some symmetry in terms of their use of surveillance technology, for example, Um, the type of concerns that we have raised over Huawei and spying and privacy, that's not an issue for the Russians. So they would view holding back the rollout and the emergence of 5G tech in the US as being to their advantage. Because at that point, as we're fighting amongst ourselves and we're having congressional hearings on whether or not this will actually be a health catastrophe, they're able to take two or three steps forward and take the lead on some emerging tech.
0: This seems to me like a very sophisticated and organized way to filter information out to the world. A lot of people in, over the last couple of years have two different opinions. You have people who think that The Kremlin in Moscow is just throwing spaghetti at the wall, essentially. It's seeing what sticks and then just going with it. And then there's the people who think this is actually quite calculated and smart and sophisticated. Curious to know what sense that you get just from looking specifically at the media um, manipulation, you know, where you're leaning.
1: Well, I, I think that's where the division is between the overt and the covert space. In the covert space, I would agree that they're just throwing a bunch of stuff on the wall, that there's not a lot of strategy there. They know the lanes that they want to run in. And who's ever sitting at the computer is given a pretty wide berth to just go out, be basically vultures of the Internet, find whatever is the most divisive stuff that's out there and just repost it at volume and just keep the space chaotic. RT and official state media where again, there actually is an editorial process there. I think it is far more strategic. And that's what you see. I mean, clearly... This is not organic, their coverage of 5G versus Huawei. I mean, these same reporters, there is no way that on their own, they are deciding to only cover health conspiracies around 5G tech when it involves America. But they don't cover those topics when they're talking about Huawei. So I think I think there is a divide clearly when you talk about Russian state funded media or the diplomatic accounts, which we're also following where there are clearly coordinated efforts to push specific narratives versus what's happening in the bot troll space, which is far more chaotic and disorganized.
0: So you're also tracking, as you mentioned, diplomatic accounts, not just media. What's going on there? Are are you seeing similar kind of parroting of the narratives the media is covering, or are they going in a different direction?
1: They are typically going in a different direction. And honestly, most days, it's a little bit Boring. The diplomatic, the embassy accounts, the accounts of diplomats, ambassadors, they're covering, you know, sort of more, it's more traditional propaganda at times of here's a beautiful region of Russia, you should go visit. And it's pretty innocuous. There's, there's really there's nothing there. But every so often, there will clearly be a coordinated campaign that they will roll out. They had a hashtag, World War II, WW2, that multiple embassies, multiple consulates participated in, basically revisionist history around World War II. So, talking about how the, the onset of the war was entirely the West's fault. Of course, they don't mention the early alliance between Soviets and Nazi Germany. They were particularly active in the Baltic states. So, you see this effort kind of across multiple diplomatic spaces to push a pro Russian whitewashed history around what they'd call the Great Patriotic War. It would also be, and we haven't had this quite yet, but for example, around the Skripal poisoning, which our site wasn't active then in terms of tracking diplomatic accounts. That's where you see the diplomatic accounts get very, very active around a subject. So day to day, sometimes not that interesting. Every so often, though, they'll latch on to a subject, and and it's not necessarily what's being covered in the media and really push an angle hard.
0: And do you get the sense that on the diplomatic side, these guys are also coordinated? Our team Sputnik have editorial boards. It's coming from the top, obviously.
1: For sure. I mean, there's a degree to which... I think probably the State Department, the MFAs everywhere. The
0: State Department issues talking points for embassies it, around the world.
1: Exactly. So it, it's not necessarily suspicious that they're all rolling out a hashtag campaign at the same time. I mean, that happens everywhere. However, their diplomatic accounts often are not very diplomatic, to say the least. Again, around Skripal, that was a time where their diplomatic accounts were basically no different from the covert troll accounts. I mean, they were... They were trolling news organizations, people that came out with reports around what was happening, Bellingcat, some of these online investigative teams. They went after those accounts hard. They were throwing out memes. They were making fun of the British. I mean, at, at times they flip to being very troll-like in ways that most other diplomatic Twitter accounts just will not do again because it's just very diplomatic. So there are times when those accounts kind of, I guess are operationalized and become very very interesting and and there is clearly coordination but again the coordination is not surprising because diplomatic accounts everywhere coordinate in some way what is surprising sometimes is how strategic they are about their targets
0: all right so with everything that you've found so far and that you'll continue to find are those efforts working the covert operations you know I think people are still arguing about how effective they were but they had real-life effects. Mm-hmm. Do you think that overt information, what's the effect there for, for real people?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's frankly a question that requires a massive amount of research that I don't think has been conducted at this point. Uh, so it requires sort of my anecdotal sense of how effective they've been. To a degree, I don't think they have been necessarily effective at making us more polarized because how are we going to be more polarized than we already are? So... Maybe initially they had some effect there, but at this point, I mean, they're throwing a match into a forest fire. It's just not doing much, I don't think. Where I think they are having some impact is uh, batting down U.S. foreign policy or inserting concerns over very kind of specific targeted events. So... Our foreign policy in in Venezuela, which a lot of Americans have legitimate concerns about, or obviously 5G, things like that. So if you look at strategic targets, I think if you mapped out the viewership of RT, people are exposed to that. I bet you would see the needle move a little bit. It would be very interesting, frankly, around the 5G health scares to track when RT started pumping out kind of a high volume of health scares. How did Google Trends change during that time? Was there an uptick in people Googling? five G going to give me cancer? Now, again, direct correlation is sometimes hard to prove for sure, but there would be a way of getting at you know how effective this actually is. My sense again is that in some instances they've been very effective, some instances probably not. But it's certainly not helpful. I mean, it's it's not beneficial to public discourse to have just this like consistent cynicism and the pervasiveness of the negativity that they insert into conversations throughout the West.
0: Yeah, and we we haven't even talked about issues like Brexit and very divisive issues happening in Europe, in Russia's backyard that maybe they actually are having a little bit more of a foothold in.
1: Going back to to the Brexit vote, that is an open discussion of how much of a role uh, Russia had in that. I mean, currently they're covering Brexit ad nauseum. But again, so is everyone else. And it's hard to pin any of the dysfunction currently in in the UK Parliament on the Russians, because I think they're doing that to themselves. But they are clearly more than happy to keep those topics in the news cycle.
0: All right. Well, I think we will wrap it up there on that very positive note. Um, Thank you so much, Brett. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant. The hosts are Peter Sparding, Rachel Towsenfreund, and me, Sydney Simon.